Good morning. Thank you. Um, well, our second lesson this morning is from John 11, verses 1 through 45. Yes, 45 verses. Um, so settle in, get your coffee, um, let the narrative kind of wash over you, see how your, your body reacts to it, what, what the Holy Spirit might be speaking and saying to you as we sit with this beautiful story um, about the raising of Lazarus on this fifth Sunday in Lent. John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. After having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? And as a very brief aside here, some translations helpfully translate the Jews here to the Jewish opposition or the Jewish religious elite as a way to clarify that it was not the entirety of the Jewish community here. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them, many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah 
the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said, had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? God, open our hearts to hear from you this morning. We trust in you, Jesus. We trust that you are the resurrection and the life, the light and hope of the world. Amen. Well, I was um, shocked last month, early last month, when my tulips started popping up out of the bed in my backyard along the backside of my house, right along the back, back of our deck. We had moved these tulips a couple years ago from one section of our small Chicago backyard to this bed on the south-facing part of our lawn. Um, and it was the day before Valentine's Day that I first saw these, these tulip shoots popping up. Um, and they're about eight or 10 inches high now. A little bunny family has been living under the deck. They have sufficiently nibble, nibbled down some of the shoots um, and just this past week, the peony shoots have started to come up, thankfully just this past week. But those tulip shoots have been there for almost a month and a half. And it's this image of too soon tulip shoots that has been the annoyingly hard to shake metaphor 
for our text this morning. It doesn't quite work, but I can't seem to shake it. Am I trying to say that new life comes out of death and dormancy in unexpected and miraculous ways? Or is the image grief-filled, that all is not right with the world? Tulip shoots are not supposed to come out of the ground in Chicago in the middle of February. Well, yes to both. So if you'll allow me, let's let the complexity of the metaphor to hold. First, Christ miraculously brings life from death. He does this for Lazarus, and this final sign in John's gospel anticipates the resurrection. And we, as Christ's followers, are called to live according to the rhythms of this resurrection life. Second, we will consider the great grief that our text outlines for us this morning. Mary and Martha's grief, and especially Jesus's grief. Jesus, the human one, acknowledges that all is not right with the world. Tulip shoots in midwinter is not okay. Death and chaos are ever-present. So two sides of the coin this morning that our tulip shoot metaphor is trying to hold for us, resurrection and grief, life, and death. And what I hope we'll see in a surprising, perhaps a surprising way this morning, is that Christ does not bypass grief, does not snap his fingers. Rather, he stands with us in our human experience of knowing pain and loss, and he groans. All of this foreshadows the anguish of the cross, the grief of the cross, and the promise that it holds for us, making way for the hope of Easter resurrection and new life. So first, before we dig into that metaphor a little bit, allow me just a little bit of time to set some context first and talk about the characters in our story. So early in our text, we read that word reaches Jesus that his friend Lazarus is sick and close to death. Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, reside in Bethany, and we know that Jesus would visit and found respite with his friends there. At this moment in the story, Bethany was a dangerous place for Jesus to be because it was close to Jerusalem where the people resided who had just tried to stone him a few days before after he had healed a blind man. And that was what Calvin preached on last week. So Jesus delays his trip to Bethany, and when he finally does arrive, he is far too late. Lazarus has been dead four days. The events and details of our story, I am statements, death, grief, stones rolled away, resurrection, burial claws, these all mirror many of the events that will take place at the cross, at the tomb of Jesus, or as the Episcopal, uh, the Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor says, this narrative John gives us is a kind of rehearsal for what lies ahead. This is a good text for us to sit with as we anticipate Holy Week. While our text concludes with verse 45, 
the story continues by offering a glimpse into the political and religious realities of the first century Jewish world. This portrait of Jesus as a political and religious challenger who refuses to prop up the power dynamics of the status quo continues to emerge and take shape in our text. I think this is important for us to appreciate as we consider the fallout of Jesus's actions. The raising of Lazarus compels many of the Jewish religious leaders to seek to silence Jesus and plot to have him killed. This final miracle, this sign, will serve as the catalyst for the beginning of the end for Jesus. This is a very weighty moment. Now for a bit of clarification about our characters. Mary of Bethany in particular seems to understand the weightiness of these final days of Jesus. It is no mistake that John opens our text, frames our story. I love this, that he does this in verse 2, signaling for us what Mary will do in the next chapter after her brother is raised. Mary is the one, John tells us in our text, Mary is the one who will anoint Jesus with perfume and will wipe his feet with her hair. Somehow, by performing this burial anointing, this act of devotion, Mary seems to grasp that Jesus' death is an integral part of his messianic destiny. And John wants us to have this in mind as we read about the events that are unfolding at Bethany and that culminate in the raising of Lazarus. I think it is important for us to allow these characters in Bethany to breathe and to hold their own individuality, especially Mary and Martha, who I have a soft spot in my heart for and who have such profound conversations with Jesus and who are in great mourning for their brother. A brief personal aside here, if you'll allow me, about Mary of Bethany. So I was reading to my kids from the children's Bible that we've mostly landed on in our home. Uh, my four-year-old especially frequently asks me to read to her, me and Dan to read to her from this book, and we're happy to oblige. However, I was very discouraged by the Bible story's account and depiction of Mary's anointing of Jesus. The children's story, conflating three different gospel accounts, Luke, Mark, and John's, labeled and repeatedly identified Mary as a big sinner who had done bad things. And in the illustrations, her eyes are downcast, her hair is unruly, and she's in tattered and patched up clothes. And she appears to be crashing a party. That woman that my daughters study inquisitively each time we read this account bears no resemblance to the Mary of Bethany, disciple of Jesus, we are presented with here in John. And she is Mary of Bethany. She's not Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary of Clopas, or Mary Magdalene. She is Mary of Bethany, and she has her own unique story. And yet, these conflations, these sloppy, blurry portrayals and stereotypes still persist to this day. I do them. 
but it's harmful. And we only need to read our Twitter feeds to be reminded that these stereotypes contribute to the snowball effect of women feeling unsafe within the church, misunderstood, not believed, sidelined. So let's pause this morning, as John does, and appreciate that Mary of Bethany is the one who has the perception, insight, and wisdom to anoint Jesus for his upcoming burial, helping to guide our reading and understanding of this final miracle act of raising Lazarus. She is the one who reverently falls at Jesus' feet in our passage, and in the next chapter, when she anoints him, and she, like her sister Martha, looks Jesus in the eye and speaks and dialogues and tries to make sense of her brother's death with her teacher, her rabbi. She lives in Bethany, hosts Jesus in her home, anoints him with perfume, and most importantly and remarkably, the text tells us she is loved by Jesus. That is her identity. And so with this bit of context and clarification of some of our characters, let's get back to our metaphor. Metaphor one, resurrection, the first side of the coin. Lots of metaphors. Tulips popping up when our rationalities tell us this cannot be so. Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead, life out of death this powerful demonstration of Christ's divinity and power is also a prophetic and countercultural glimpse of a new reality, the kingdom of God where good news is preached to the poor, those that are captive, bondaged, and oppressed are released, doors are flung open for those on the outside, sight is restored, those deemed unclean are made clean, and death is reversed. All of these miracle signs throughout John's gospel and all the gospels are outposts pointing to what Jesus is about, what God has been doing from the very beginning. Abundant life for all, not just the powerful, bringing the future into our present. What good news. So who is this one who can hold such promise and hope? Well, as Jesus walks to Lazarus' tomb, he is met by Martha. And with her, he shares one of his famous I am statements, which speaks to Jesus' identity as not only the one who can bring life out of death, but who is in fact the resurrection and the life right here, right now. Resurrection isn't just a doctrine. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright tells us he is a person, and he's standing right in front of Martha, and he's brimming with the promise of resurrection and life now. Like he does with Martha, Jesus asks us for our faith, our trust. Do you believe this? He asks her. Do you believe in this life I am offering you? Belief entails action, and to live according to the rhythms of Jesus' kingdom will confound our rationalities and stretch our imaginations, 
just like my February tulip shoots did. Resurrection living will affect our politics, our pocketbooks, our socio-religious parameters, everything. It confronts us as an urgent call, beckoning us to provoke an upheaval of the status quo then and now. It was too radical for the religious elite, and Jesus knows that as he's offering life, those who hold power will soon demand his death. Howard Thurman gets at this tension in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Uh, Michael mentioned the community group reading uh, one of their books, Failure, is it? And uh, one of our other community groups just finished reading uh, Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited, and discussed it this past week, I think. Um, Shameless plug for community groups. Come talk to me if you want to get involved. Um, But Thurman, the great theologian and civil rights leader, observes and names a similar power dynamic, saying, it cannot be denied that too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the powerful and against the weak and oppressed. This despite the gospel. The power dynamic that too often cripples and undermines the work of the church is a similar dynamic we see swirling around Jesus in this moment. His signs and miracles that are about to culminate in Lazarus' death reversal are a direct and prophetic refutation of this abuse of power by the religious elite and Jesus like Thurman, knows that it will be costly. It will demand his death. Knowing all of this, Jesus continues on to the tomb of Lazarus. And this brings us to the second part of our tulip metaphor, grief. All that is wrong with tulip shoots in a Chicago February. We often look around and we don't see resurrection. We see chaos, death, and corrupt power. Things are not how they should be. COVID losses that we are still trying to mourn, church wounds that won't go away, our doubts and insecurities, the failings of our bodies, broken relationships, the grave clothes of war, genocide, poverty, disease, systematic abuse, and systemic oppression. It can all feel like too much. But that's what I I love about our passage, is that we are not asked to pretend that all is as it should be. Like Mary and Martha, oftentimes, all we can bring to Jesus are our if-onlys. If only you'd been here. You should have been here. This is not okay. I am not okay. Mary and Martha's if-onlys are chock full of reproach. They bring their griefs, their questions, even their anger to Jesus. But notice they still go to him. They bring their trust. It's still him to whom they go. And Jesus holds all of it. And as the human one enters into it with us and for us, 
he weeps with Mary, with humanity. Jesus is weeping. The grief and the troubled and spirit language that we read in our passage has puzzled many scholars over the years because it includes verbs that go beyond simply grieving the death of a friend. It's raw human emotion, gut-wrenching anguish, even anger. We seem to be witnessing Jesus' anger and indignation at death itself and the devastation that it brings. Even the one who is himself, the resurrection and the life, is deeply unsettled by human grief and death. What a God we serve. A truly human one who knows what it means to feel and be human, to grieve, to groan. And this is the wonder of this God that we serve, that by entering the pain, new life can emerge. It is the pathway to undo death. So it is with this reference point of outrage at death itself, the reference point of his revealed identity as the resurrection and the life, the reference point of his impending death yet to come, that Jesus stares death in the face and calls out to his friend, Lazarus, come out. And trusting in God, Jesus works to reverse the damage of death and bring in the kingdom, the true reality of human flourishing, good news for the poor, knowing that it will ultimately prompt his own death in the following days. Oh, the wonders of his love. So what are we trying to say here? What, what have we seen here? Why did we end with grief and not with resurrection? Well, one of the things first that I hope we're sensing is the call that this resurrection talk, the kingdom of God, is realized by entering into grief and pain, lamenting the sin that afflicts our world, our communities, and our very lives. We are called to take part, to stand in solidarity and grief with those on the outside, those under the weight of death, the victims of corrupted power. We are called to accompany, to advocacy, to companionship, bearing witness, hearing stories, sharing burdens. And in this way, we can participate in Christ's remaking of the world. I also invite you to rest in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. This is not a cozy story, but it is a strong and sturdy one that shows us that resurrection is unattainable without the cross. The cross, the ultimate anguish, the ultimate grief. The kingdom of God, the new humanity, is modeled for us not from on high by an outsider, but is accomplished for us by one, the one, who embraces the grief, bears the weight of sin, enters death, and does this, John tells us, for the world. This is the self-emptying love of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, God who stands with us, who asks for our trust, our belief, and to catch the vision, 
the road to Easter morning runs smack through Good Friday. It is through his death, it is through his own sharing of the common fate of humanity that we are saved, placing our trust in this one who carries our griefs as he remakes the world. Church family, there is power loose in the universe that is stronger than death, and it is love. Love that knows and carries our griefs, love that calls each of us by name out of our smelly tombs, our deaths, into the fullness and sweet mystery of resurrection life today. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief and pain, to you we turn and offer you our lives, our hopes, our doubts, our anger, and our trust. Word of God who broke death's hold, we praise you. Breathe new life into us and teach us to live according to the rhythms of your kingdom for the glory of God and the love of neighbor. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.